and put it in a chair. Uh, cup, let, me, let me make a, what are you laughing at? Um, just a quick remark or two. Uh, follow up to kind of some of the things uh, Brett alluded to, to at the very end. When I get back to Kansas City, my intention is uh, to establish a GoFundMe page. And, um, you know, I think that uh, probably they don't need any help at all with medical expenses because that is simply as high as the national debt. So, you know, somebody's going to have to write that off. That's just, just the way that is. But in however, you know, I think when families go through situations like this, boy, you, you really do need help. Um, Getting, getting to the place where you can rack up those medical expenses. And uh, while I know that there's been maybe even a couple of uh, t-shirt sale type things, I, I, I didn't see anything that was strictly like a donation page, GoFundMe. I, so, so I'm going to do that for the Bartlett family. And, uh, you know, I intend to ask uh, Brother Mark Trotter if he'll announce it because he's got like a bajillion friend, like out of seven billion people on the planet, a billion are... <laughs> friends with Mark Trotter, and if he announces it, everybody will know. So, uh, so this is our last um, session time uh, together, and, you know, I try to go back to the beginning when we started off to give you the backstory to the story, uh, uh, the story about what you have today uh, that is, uh, has gold edges and leather bound. Uh, when we started this off, because this is actually not just a conference, but the conference is incorporated in a class, in a course for Living Faith Bible Institute, and so two weeks ago I laid down a foundation uh, for what we were going to see by looking at exactly what the Bible is by definition with how the Bible looks and a description of uh, how the books came together in the order and the manner in which we have them, and here at the conference uh, you know, we took, uh, I think, the first day from clay tablets to codex uh, or uh, uh, papyrus or leather leaves bound in a book form. Um, we did the hard but necessary work yesterday, as uh, Pastor Mark Trotter had done in the evening session the night before, of examining the Bible's materials of transmission down through the centuries, a process of inspiration uh, in uh, describing exactly how God reveals his word and the method of preservation in the original language, Greek and Hebrew manuscripts that are still in existence. But really, <coughs> I, I, you know, I don't know why other people preach or teach. I preach in order to create faith in the hearts of my hearers. So my goal at this conference, without fear of successful contradiction, is that the conference overall as a whole is going to be unassailable and incontrovertible. So this time, I want to turn a corner. I want to take us all the way from text to translation by looking at three areas, the nature of translation, the process of getting a text to translate from, and the process of translating that text. Because when it comes to the history and the heritage of our Bible, there were a lot of forces at work you don't even think about like some of them that Pastor Trotter listed last night. Liberal, conservative, neo-Orthodox, neo-evangelical. Uh, you know, we can dress up our Bible today, but one author 
describes the Bible as the manuscript from outer space. Now let me hit you with my thesis. My thesis for today's study is the Bible did not come down to us in hermetically sealed packages. And thank God, neither did Jesus. And while nobody has a chapter in their systematic theology on the two natures of the Bible, they should. So why do we need to know this? Why is this so important? Let me give you the top 10. Pastor Trotter gave you, what, seven last night? What did he give us, seven? Well, let me, let me go back to a, to, a, to a previous comedian, give you top 10 reasons. You need to know what the Bible is. Here are the reasons I would give for why we take the stand we take with the King James Bible specifically as being God's words in the English language. This is our reason for a reasoned defense of biblical authority and having a faith-based view of the Bible. God, God gave us, after a 200-year process, something that, had, that was our only Bible for 300 years. And so number 10, there's a denial today of the existence of truth as an absolute standard and final authority. Some in our postmodern society deconstruct and deny the existence of truth, but certainly society has moved toward the position there's no absolute standard to be found. Whatever is best for the crowd and doesn't hurt anybody is all right. So they view it skeptically and not believingly. So number nine, secular society criticizes the Bible as a mixture of truth and error. As do the Muslims criticize the Bible that way. They look at the Bible only as giving us what's uh, what I would call morality by myth-making. Because we are in an age of evangelical libertarianism. So even evangelicals are willing to say, do what you want, just don't send me the bill. In their mind, there is no longer a final authority to be followed outside of man himself and our ability to reason. Number eight, when the Bible has been revised in English, it's tended to become relativized. Most modern Bible translations move us along a line of getting a text that is more and more contemporary to the reader, less and less faithful to the Hebrew and Greek text, whatever ones they think those are. So uh, you go from uh, New American Standard Bible, new text, to New International Version, new translating philosophy. Then you go from the NIV to the TNIV and the NIRV and versions that use inclusive language, which further relativizes the text and makes what is being said subject to our changing society instead of changing our society to conform to the word. Number seven, a body of other holy books now compete with the Bible. And this would include the Quran and the Book of Mormon. Well, wait, hold on one second. I know you bought your mama that book called Jesus Calling for her birthday. And author Sarah Young says, it is all based on hearing words from Jesus. But hold it. Is that Jesus' words, or is that just what you want him to say? I mean, was it really Jesus? Or kind of like that book, The Shack? Is it just how you imagine Jesus? Jesus never talked like how you make him out to say. 
And yet our authors, our evangelical authors, make big money off our gullibility. How do they do that? Because we have a body of books that compete for attention and acceptance with our Bible. So we go to seed on those fads. And then the Bible is our sacred scripture suffers. So instead of going to bed with a psalmonite and putting a new psalm in your heart, because the next day begins the night before. Oh, instead, you go, to, you go to bed with this other stuff. And so what you need to know, this is number six, you need, to know, you need to know what the Bible is because the Bible becomes the basis of disunity when it is viewed skeptically. Now, I need you to know that there are people out there who will look at us and look at this conference and look at what we're saying, and since they can't controvert what we're saying, we're saying they will look at how we say it, and they will say, they will, it, it psychologically is called projection, and they will project on us and say, well, you're, you're causing disunity. No, baby Baba. Bible becomes the basis of disunity whenever you view it skeptically. I would say the basis of disunity is also when it's not viewed dispensationally. And the reason it's not viewed dispensationally is because you lost the cross-references in the King James Bible. That is why Dallas, Dallas Theological Seminary, progressive dispensationalists, why? Because they don't have a Bible anymore that gives them the cross-references that were the basis for all the truth that they found back in the day that they now don't have. So, so God snookered the snookerers. Uh, divide rightly the word of truth. Harmonizes the word of truth. And resolves the questions and contradictions about the truth. Don't do that. And you can think you have a very accurate version. That after 52 changes, you'll never have to change so per, into perpetuity. Until, you, 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 until so much hits the fan. Somebody told me that, <laughs> Brett told me that whatever it was that hit the fan came out of Vatic anus, and I, and I don't know, I don't know, but so much hit the fan that they had to backpedal on that immediately, but you can think, you have such an accurate version, but that's why you end up in Reformation and Replacement Theology. Hello, somebody. If you view the Bible skeptically and you question certain portions, then you end up either starting your own religion or bringing false systems into your Christian walk. I just gave you the answer. Uh, this is a historical basis for the heretical movements of the first few centuries of the church as Satan sowed seeds of counterfeits in with the genuine articles. If you want to know how could the church looks so different in the two centuries between the close of the book of Acts and the edict of toleration by Emperor Constantine. How could the church go into that tunnel and come out at the other end looking so different than just watch the changes that take place in some churches in as little as two decades? Hello, somebody. 
For this reason, number five, critics are trying to find a canon within the canon. The canon is a list of sacred books accepted as authentic and authoritative. So the canon in the New Testament are the books Matthew through Revelation. And obviously, if critics get rid of the Bible lock, stock, and barrel, they have no job because they have nothing left to criticize. So what had happened was they sit in judgment on the canon handed down to us through history by the priesthood of believers. So they try to decide, like the scholars of the Jesus Seminar do, which sayings in the Gospels really belong to the historical Jesus. Then whatever they decide, they put in red letters. Former evangelical Bart Ehrman in his book, Misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why. He's a great example along this line. Number four, Satan makes sure old heresies are recycled as new creative attacks. There's a saying in Spanish. Saying in Spanish to the effect, the devil isn't good because he's the devil. The devil is dangerous because he's so old. Meaning, the devil is good at what he does because he has so much experience with humanity. So a few years ago, we had three major efforts to recycle heresies creatively, the Da Vinci Code, the Tomb of Jesus in Talpiot, and the Gospel of Judas. Uh, we, uh, then we had three other things, contemplative spiritual disciplines, like Lectio Divina, uh, crazy psychotherapies, and the lost books of the Bible. Today we have three other things, consumerism, corporatism, and celebrity pastor cults. And so number three, eternal life hangs in the balance because only the Bible has the words of life. So we have to know what the Bible is in order to find the gospel of grace, the eternal purpose of God and everlasting life. Okay, wait, you're still not getting this because... You grew up in semi-pagan fundamentalism, and your reaction is against that semi-pagan fundamentalism. So hear me, hear me out before you turn off the live stream. Paganism said the gods have to be appeased. Semi-pagan fundamentalism says, oh yeah, you're saved by grace, but you're only spiritual by law. God blesses your faithfulness, meaning faithfulness to my brand of spirituality code. No, baby Baba, we've not got a God to be appeased. We have a God whose grace is to be claimed. That means all the spirituality, all the spiritual energy I need, I get from Christ's finished work for me. But if Satan can get us sidetracked onto something else for abundant life, and number two, if we spend our life following something untrue, we are of all people most miserable. A proof of that is all the stuff you're having to do to try and keep from being miserable. <clears throat> now look, I know you, th you think that the deep state and the CIA killed Trump and replaced him with a golem made of potatoes and mayonnaise. But you gotta track with me on this, okay? You gotta track with me. Put most men aside for a few minutes and track with me on this. Do not give your life to something less than true spirituality, the abundant Christian life, God's eternal purpose. Because I need you to know, and this is number one, 
The Bible claims to be inspired by the Holy Spirit, truly authoritative and inerrant. But if we are not certain of the words of truth today, that don't matter. We've had you turn many times to Proverbs 22, verses 20 and 21. I won't have you turn to it again. I will just remind you of it. Because I did not make this up. This is not my fault. These threats are real. There are reasons why this is the Laodicean, meaning lukewarm age of the church. And these are the ways that we have left our first love. So I want to begin this session by laying my basis in some assumptions, and here's where I start in my thinking. I want you to know that up front, because that leads me to the conclusions I come to. If we do not share the same assumptions, we can be looking at exactly the same evidence and still come to different conclusions. So let's start with Roman number one, the nature of translation. Turn to Romans chapter 11. Uh, we want to take as the foundation for our thoughts the very words of the Bible itself. I do, uh, you know, I read the scholars. I don't go to the scholars for my thinking because that's not the mind of Christ. I know something of the words and works of the scholars, but even if I can speak their lingo, I really trust Bible readers more than I trust Bible scholars. So I go first to the scriptures themselves to define what is the exact nature of Bible translating. Will you go there with me and, and see what we can find? Romans 11, verse 2, God has not cast away his people which he foreknew. Want you know what the scripture saith of Elias? How he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying... Lord, they kill my prophets, dig down nine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. Criticize that as a bad attitude if you want. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I've reserved to myself 7,000 men. Maybe you ought to go to their conference. Stop being scared of what's not going on in your town and, and go to their conference, because they've not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Now, don't get bogged down in the trees. I'm trying to plant a forest here for you. Uh, Paul quotes Elijah from the Old Testament. Elijah's words were originally recorded in Hebrew in 1 Kings 19, verses 10, 14, and 18. Paul quotes in Greek what Elijah said in Hebrew, and he calls his translation Scripture. So even though the Bible was not hermetically sealed as a manuscript from outer space, this is our first point for study. It is consistent with the Word of God to say a translation of God's words can be truly be scriptures of God in a second language. That's what the Bible teaches you. That's data, Bible data. You've got to do something with that. Can't just run over ignoring it, ignoring it, saying, well, nobody else believes it. Turn to 2 Samuel 3. It's 2 Samuel 3 in your left hand, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 11 in your right hand. Um, so you can believe it or not, Ripley, but I'm just saying it is consistent with Bible usage itself to teach what we're teaching. The next thing we learn from the scriptures is that when God translates, he's able, he, he is able to do a perfect, meaning a complete job. Uh, consider three places, 2 Samuel 3.10, to translate the kingdom from the house of Saul and to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah. You remember David. Brother Bartlett talked about David. David, who's, you know, great-grandfather, married an immigrant, 
David, whose great-great-grandfather was in love with a hooker? Okay, that David. Translate the kingdom from Saul, head and shoulders above everybody, to, to set up the throne of David over Israel. That's a, that a translation process. Colossians 1.13, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Hebrews 11.5, by faith Enoch was translated. That way he wouldn't see death. He wasn't found. They looked for him. And the reason he wasn't found is because God translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony. He pleased God. Now, I don't know what your testimony is going to be after the rapture, but I hope that's my testimony. And those are the only three references to the word translate in the Bible. So let me hit you with this definition. To translate is to transfer from one state to another, transpose from one location to another. The Hebrew verb means to pass over, pass through, or pass on. To cross a border or boundary, to march over. The Greek word means to transfer by moving out of place. In this context, it was a transition to another state or another location. But because the Bible is the mind of God for man today, because it has one divine mind behind it, and it was Holy Spirit-inspired, from these three uses, I can point out three things regarding the nature of translating from the Word of God itself. Wait, be, wait, because this is exactly the type of exegetical argument most scholars object to. And all it is is an exegesis of the text. You'd think that'd be all right. They would never use the Bible as the basis for a theory of linguistics. Read Philip Wesley Comfort, because instead they use Alexandrian Greeks preserving Aristotle as their basis. And that is why we come to different conclusions. We're both looking at the same evidence. The data is the same for each. Their theory of linguistics is like their theory of counseling. It's like their theory of manuscript history. It is like their theory of origins. Based totally from a human perspective, they box God out. They box the Holy Spirit out without considering what God, who created human language, has to say about it. So what is the nature of translating according to the Bible? First, letter A, a perfect translation is consistent with the character and integrity of God. The, the originals are gone, long gone. How gone is goodbye? This gone. The Greek, though not so much the Hebrew, is corrupt. That, that's how gone the Greek is. Is God so puny as not to be able to keep the promise to preserve his word? Well, I believe my view of scripture has to be tied to my view of God as to his integrity and his power. So second, second letter B, a perfect translation is consistent with the character of scripture. In all the phases, 
inspiration, inscripturation, transmission, preservation, right down to translation, the Bible did not fall down. It did not fall down to us out of space in a, in a hermetically sealed package. Not in any of those cases. It was humanly incarnated just like Jesus was. So here's our second point for study. God uses human instrumentality without being at the mercy of human events or human frailty. That is how big my God is. He, he can create a rock so big he can't move it and still be God. Man, that's how big my God is. God can't die. Yes, he did. That's how big my, my God can die and still be God. Nothing, that is why nothing is impossible with God. God created a crack in the Trinity, turned his back on himself so he could hide you in that crack while his wrath passed over you back onto himself. How'd you miss that all these years? And, and this is very important to recognize because letter C, a perfect translation is consistent with the evidence of history. This third point is where we've got to do a little dance, make a little love, and get down tonight. I mean, where's Casey in the Sunshine Band when you need them? We need to spend some quality time on this because we've got to answer the question, if it did not come down from heaven in a hermetically sealed package, how did I get God's words in English? Does the evidence in history line up with the data from the Bible? Let's consider this under a couple of major headings. They cover the process of getting a text and the process of getting a translation. In each of these areas, I want, uh, I want to show you in history how the Holy Spirit was actively involved in standardizing his word. So let's first talk about Roman numeral two, the process of getting a text. The written word's the most accurate method of communication. Pictures are great, but without a caption, the picture is open to interpretation. That's why pictures are worth a thousand words, because they simultaneously communicate so many different, sometimes contradictory ideas. Then body and sign language, that's even more vague than pictures are. Even my spoken word is dependent on your precise attention and your ability to sort out and comprehend what I'm saying in real time and then retain it for future reference. Unless, of course, you're watching on YouTube. And then you can speed it up. Good luck with that. Now, even still, if I'm a bad speaker, then the problem of accurate communication is compounded. And that means, here's our third point for study. The best way to transfer thought accurately is through the written word. A writer has time to think about what he wants to say, try different wording to find the right phrase, get the message just like he wants to communicate it. Let me open a window on that word because Hallmark Cards is headquartered in Kansas City and Hallmark is one of the major corporations in America. Why? Because they have just the right words for you when you care enough to send the very best. That is why in the Bible, every single word is important. And the words are the key to the scripture. Now, don't get sleepy on me and don't be binary about that because here's our fourth point for study. God caused his thoughts, which are absolutely holy, to be recorded in such a way his providence incorporated human flesh and we received a complete and perfect statement of his mind. That is my starting assumption. And that is what most scholars will not accept as a starting point. 
they approach things from a beginning point. It's called an a priori assumption of skepticism, not belief. This is how you know if you have a faith-based view of the Bible or not. Their point would be you cannot start off by assuming the thing you want to prove, biblical authority. My answer would be, I'm not trying to prove the divine nature of the Bible or even defend it. Just exegete it. Just exposit it. Just declare it. And if you're trying to prove the Bible simply a human book, then you cannot start off with your own assumption either. So any written communication that's going to carry a weight of authority has to be certain. It has to be sure. That is, that is why there are lawyers. That is why treaties are negotiated by diplomatic corps who have the wisdom of centuries and the skill of linguistics. The Father spoke, the Son spoke, and right now the Holy Spirit is speaking to men and women through the preaching of His Word. Here now is how He solidified the authority of His Word as an absolute standard in the Hebrew and then the Greek languages. First, let us consider letter A. Hebrew text of the Old Testament, every age has certain inventions that change the world as we know it. The 1960s saw the advent of the jet age, and that changed everything. The 80s saw the coming of the computer age, and that changed, that changed everything. The 90s gave rise to the internet, and that changed everything. And in the 2000s, we learned about twerking, and that changed everything. But in 1620... Sir Francis Bacon said there were three things that changed his world in 1620. Gunpowder, the magnet, and printing. Printing press. <coughs> you have to understand, literacy was rare in the Middle Ages. But the Renaissance saw a renewal of culture that prompted written and spoken eloquence and a new type of commerce. It was a commerce in ideas as men and women in the West started to see themselves as individuals. <coughs> Excuse me, they're no longer just nameless, uh, faceless members of a serf society. That rise in literacy created an insatiable demand for books. Now, rag and fiber-based papers were invented in China in the 100s. New inks based on lamp black were invented early on in the Middle Ages. But to produce a book, well, that was still a painfully slow process because the labor involved physically in writing out every line. <clears throat> so then around the turn of the 1400s, somebody came up with the idea of engraving illustrations on wooden blocks, applying ink to the block with a cushion, and then producing multiple copies of that image on individual sheets of paper and binding them together to form a book. But the blocks were costly. There was still too much labor to do it quickly. And for a long time, the, bi the books like the Bible were way too cumbersome to do that with. But because there was a market... An entrepreneur who was a local goldsmith in Mainz gave the financial backing, about $2 million in today's money, to a man named Johannes Gutenberg. Gutenberg ingeniously incorporated new and old ideas. It's kind of like the Glock. He, he incorporated new and old ideas to form this efficient, 
printing system. First, he took a wine press, adjusted it by adding a printing box, further tinkered with the recipe for oil-based ink, and then made it all those things to a radical new idea, movable type, so letters could be reused after you printed a page. His method of casting type was used all the way until 1838. Needing more money, Gutenberg wanted to prove to his investor that he could pull off a great project, and it had to be the Bible for a number of reasons. First, because its sheer length made it a phenomenal challenge. I mean, that was the, that was the Tesla of the ancient world. This was, this was you know, a SpaceX uh, bringing, a, uh, bringing a, a booster back, back down to the planet, landing on a, on a barge. And second, this would push that new technology to its limits. Third, there was an upsurge in religious activity and devotion. Fourth, the clergy's monopoly on literacy was being overthrown. Hence, the first book printed, the one that shaped our Western civilization, is the Bible. The first dated printed book is the Latin Psalter, 1454. Printing of a complete B-54, excuse me, B-42, not B-52, B-42. A, a, a 42-line Bible was finished in 1456. It was, it was in Latin, the language of government and church and college, not the language of the common person. Possibly as few as 185 copies were printed, of which about 40 still exist, only 22 of them complete. Asking price at the time was about three years' wages if you were a learned clerk, or the equivalent of the purchase price of a large townhouse in the city. A Gutenberg Old Testament was purchased by a Japanese buyer from Christie's Auction House in 1987 for $5.4 million, the record for a printed book at the time. The cost of a complete copy today is estimated to be between 25 and 30 million. Now, if I'm going to tell it right, I've got to tell it all. And, and you young preachers, don't be afraid of that. Go ahead and tell it all if you're going to tell it right. To add a new line to his business... Gutenberg start, started printing indulgences. Because in the past, an indulgence had to be handwritten by church officials. Well, now they could be printed by the thousands, signed by the church, and sold. Can I give you a sidebar about that? William Caxton went from England to Europe to learn printing. He, he returned to England. He set up a print shop at Westminster. The first work published on English soil was an indulgence issued by John, abbot of Abington, to Henry and Catherine Langley. They were the Kardashians of the ancient world, and this couple, no strangers to worldly delights. They had a lot of sins. They needed absolved, and they wanted the merit of a pilgrimage without having to make a pilgrimage. The practical effect was indulgences allowed anybody with money to sin with impunity. Well, what's new about that? One report suggests Gutenberg may have printed upwards of 200,000 indulgences himself. Now, not for himself, but for sale to the church. Germany was ahead of the competition, for the, so the first German Bible came out off the press in 1466. By 1483... There were nine different German translations in print. The unintended consequence was the Bible became a societal leveler. 
That was part of the reason the Reformation caught fire in Germany. Track with me the sevenfold development of the Hebrew Bible into printed form during the Renaissance. Let's start with a glossary of terms related to the Hebrew Old Testament so you can be smart too. And I'm not going to read through these. I, I think I put them on your handout. And I put them on your handout because this is an LFBI course, not just a conference. So they're there. Turn now to Psalm chapter 12. Psalm 12, the Masoretes, uh, Masoretic scribes, developed a meticulous mathematical technique uh, for copying Hebrew manuscripts that would ensure both the cons consonantal unpointed text and the vocalized text with points and accents were preserved in perfection. Perfection means in completion as they received it because it also includes variations they note in the Masora, in, in the marginal readings of, from the different texts they were translating from. Because that, that's how God does things. So can I take you from zero to 107 sweet steps? Psalm 12, verse 6 says, The words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth. Even though they're pure words, they've got to be purified seven times. And so we gave you a list starting in 1477. Uh, I'll have you note about the whole Old Testament that was printed at uh, Cincino, Italy in uh, 1488 and reprinted uh, later on. Uh, the last edition of that was the one Martin Luther used to make his German translation of the Bible. Uh, then because of persecution, the next edition of the Hebrew text isn't until 1511, well, 1511 through 17. I mean, they started printing it and finally got done with it, 1517, uh, called the Complutensian Polyglot, or a parallel translation. The standard edition of the Masoretic text uh, came about in about 1525. Now, turn to Romans chapter 3, because at that point, through the process of seven stages, the standard printed Hebrew text was set. God works through all these people in all these places, and whether or not they had any inkling of the process, we are saying at the end of the line, true believers recognized and received a standard Hebrew text from God for the Old Testament. Certainly the Jews thought so. Having this plus the printing press, they then said, let's publish God's word to the ends of the earth. So we can draw an intermediate conclusion from observing the evidence in history. We draw that conclusion this way on the Old Testament. The Masoretic text is the true Hebrew text because it represents the providential work of the Holy Spirit in guiding the Jews to preserve the oracles God gave them. And that is exactly what the Word of God says will occur. Booyah! You know your theory's right when, it, when what you predict actually takes place. Romans 3, verse 1, what advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way. But Paul says, let me single out the, the best one, because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. Okay, so what about letter B, the Greek text in the New Testament? How did we get the Greek text of our English New Testaments that they were translated from? There are over 5,800 Greek manuscripts 
extant, meaning still in existence. You know, we're taking online questions. Some, you know, sometimes people get on there. They'll, you know, they, they look at what we're saying and the way that we say it, and they'll look at it and they'll say, well, okay. You know, you're saying that there are two lines of Bibles, quote, unquote, uh, because of what the Bible says about those two places, Alexandria and Antioch. So, well, there are 5,800 manuscripts. What makes you believe that they are, you know, substantially from those two places? Well, here's what makes me believe it. Bruce Metzger, Kurt Olland, Philip Wesley Comfort. Do you not go back and read original sources? Do you not do any original research of your own? And they'll, they'll sometimes subdivide, as I talked about a day or two ago, one or two of those places with small little, you know, things. Caesarean text. Okay, I, I'll call uh, Alexandrian Western, or they'll, or they'll subdivide Caesarean. Okay, all that means is origin. Read the scholars. All it means is origin brought his text from Alexandria to Caesarea on his way to Jerusalem. And uh, really, there is no coherence to a Caesarean text. What we do is we find all of these paraphrases and throw them in a pile and call it the Caesarean text. All right. So what are you left with? According to the scholars, 5,800 manuscripts that divide into two families, or as we say, two lines. Not, not because of what anybody else said besides the scholars. And your problem is you don't do original research and you don't go back and read what they say. You can't even think critically about the critics. What is wrong with you? In addition to the manuscript evidence, there are two other witnesses to the New Testament text. There are versions, early translations. We talked about that. There are the church fathers who were early and imperial church leaders quoting scripture in their writings. So we also give you a glossary of terms related to the Greek New Testament so you can be smart too. And because this is an LFBI course and not just a Bible conference, but okay, that's on your, that's on your handout. So walk with me, walk with me now through the steps. How did we get what we got in the Greek for the New Testament? Number one, the first Greek text to be published was Des Desiderius Erasmus at Basel, Switzerland, March 15, 16. And that was followed in rapid succession by four later editions as the pure word was purified in a furnace of earth. 1519, 1522, the first one to include 1 John 5, 7, 1527, 1535. One of those later editions was the basis of Martin Luther's German New Testament printed in 1522 and William Tyndale's English New Testament printed in 1525. Number two, the first Greek text to be printed but it wasn't published was that parallel Bible from Complutum in Spain. Uh, it, it was a polyglot or parallel Bible because it contained Latin, Hebrew, and Greek for the Old Testament and Latin and Greek for the New Testament. 600 were printed in 1514, but they held on to them until completing the Old Testament, which was not done until 1517. In the meantime, 
Erasmus heard what they were doing, and he got a four-year exclusive privilege from the Pope to publish his text first. Well, if that don't beat all. Erasmus won the race to have the first available Greek text in circulation. This is how the honey runs. Analogy back to what we talked about with, you know, Jonathan and the battle. Uh, This is why the apostles and prophets did not give you a hermetically sealed manuscript. Number three, Robert SDN. Doing business as his thug name, Stephanus. When in England, he went by the Latin, Anglicanized form of his Latin name, Stevens. So he added, edited four Greek texts, which is the first New Testament to include numbered verses, the uh, 1551 edition. Uh, Theodore de Beza edited 10 editions between 1565 and 1611. Bonaventure and L. Abraham Elzevir, the Elzevir brothers, kind of like Sanford and Son, the Elzevir brothers published seven editions from 1624 to 1678. Their second edition, 1633, standardized the Greek text. What they said in their preface, which was in Latin, said, you have the text, textum, which is now received, receptum, by all. And nothing has been changed or corrupted. Now, that was their declaration. Okay, that was their slogan, that was their motto. Just because they said it doesn't necessarily make it so. What you have to look at is not what the scholars say who have a lot less credibility and a lot more skepticism, a lot less believingness than than any of these other guys we're talking about. No, you need to look at what God did not, not what man says and not just what man did. Here's what God did. Five steps and God stopped. So let me draw an intermediate conclusion from the historical evidence to the printed Greek New Testament this way. The traditional text, also called Byzantine, Syrian, Eastern, Majority, Koine, Family 35, or Received Text, is the true Greek text because it represents the providential work of the Holy Spirit guiding the priesthood of believers. Why would, why would you not want to believe that? Just because you're such a sissy at being ridiculed by those who have imbibed the spirits of the age? So there are three conclusions any Christian can learn by looking at the evidence. That is, as long as their beginning presuppositions and opinions are shaped and formed by the word of God itself, then you can come to these three conclusions. Number one, the printed Greek text from 1517 to 1633 represents the Holy Spirit's providential preservation of Scripture. What few changes of any consequence in the traditional Eastern text needed to be made were made by, by believers in Western Europe. Why? Because it was a process and not binary. Because the printed text never existed till they started printing it. Poor Ahemplo. The first two editions of Erasmus Greek text did not yet have 1 John 5, 7. But Western Christians had that verse preserved in their Latin Vulgate. Now before you get your culottes in a wad, you need to know it's also 
in the majority of old Latin manuscripts. Early church fathers like Cyprian and Priscillian knew of or quoted it. Other African and Western bishops in later centuries cite it. So when people noticed it missing, they complained to Erasmus. Consensus of the priesthood of believers was, and what does Erasmus care? He's got, he's got permission from the Pope to print what he wants. But he does care about biblical accuracy, biblical authority. And the consensus of the priesthood of believers was 1 John 5, 7 had biblical authority. But because it was such a clear statement on the Trinity, it was attacked and almost wiped out early on. So every subsequent edition of, of, of Erasmus received text included that verse. Now get Ezekiel 14 in your left hand and 1 Thessalonians 2 in your right. Ezekiel 14, 1 Thessalonians 2. Almost all modern Bibles today do, do not have that verse. Yet they renumber the verses so you don't know they eliminated it. Hello, somebody. Now is the time you ought to get your culottes in a wad. What we say, and this is our fifth point for study, is that alleged errors left in the text of the Bible are not errors at all. They are God's necessary ambiguity for his own providential purposes. Because here is how God works. I mean, you can use the Bible to define what you see in history. God works by incarnation, not by hermetically sealed packaging. It is not binary. It is a process. So this is going to mess you up. But let me, give you, let me give you two good reasons for apparent errors in the original text or in the process of transmission or in decisions made about canonization or in arriving at a perfect translation. First, letter A, to drive the skeptic away. Ezekiel 14, verses 3 to 5. And, and I just want to lift out of verse 4 this one statement. I, the Lord will answer him that cometh, check this, according to the multitude of his scholars. I'm just saying. If, if anybody else can be dynamically equivalent in their translation, I can too. And you say, oh, but no, God, you are of, you are of too pure eyes to behold evil. Like Haggai, I thought. And God says, no, baby Baba, I can use the Babylonians to correct my own people. But God, don't you know, I mean, the Babylonians, I mean, I mean, we may be bad, but they are like bad, bad. Yeah. But God, don't you love us? But God, why don't you just have a loving position with people who disagree with you? and a little more inclusive than you as to some of these things. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. For this cause also we thank God without ceasing. Because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, wow, I mean, can you imagine hearing God's word for the very first time? I mean, as it was being produced. Ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which effectually worketh also in 
you that believe. God says, I answer a certain kind of fool according to their folly. Another kind of fool, I don't answer according to their folly, but turn to 1 Kings chapter 22. Because if you're here and you're not asleep, I know just what you're asking. Look, Alan, how does that work then? How does that work for you? Okay, you're asking good questions because just like with the process of inspiration and inscripturation that we saw Sunday night in Jeremiah chapter 36, we are also given an an example of apparent error being propagated by God for his own providential purposes. This time it's not found in Jeremiah. It's found through Micaiah. Okay, watch, this is very important. 1 Kings 22, verse 19. And Micaiah said to Ahab and others, uh, Hear thou therefore the word of the Lord. I mean, if you're going to force me to give you the truth, let me tell you, you know, let me tell it all. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who shall persuade MacArthur? Who shall persuade Alistair Begg? Who who all who all did did Pastor Trotter list last night? Who shall persuade Jeffress? Help me, Holy Spirit. Who shall persuade Jeff Adams that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said on this manner, and another said on that manner, and there came forth a spirit and stood before the Lord and said, this ain't no thing but a chicken wing. I'll persuade him. And the Lord said, okay, how do you think you can persuade him? And he said, I'll go forth and I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of all the books he reads and his executive pastors that he listens to. God says, thou shalt persuade him and, and prevail also. Go forth and do it. Well, what about the two lines? How come you believe in that? I mean, just because the Bible says Antioch and Alexandria, what, what does that mean? Well, that's like criticizing me because I teach there's a gap. Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, the gap fact. There's a gap. But you're accusing me I teach the gap only so I can accommodate evolution. No way, Jose. Impossible. I ain't teaching two lines because, you know, some dude you don't like taught it. That's, that's what the scholars give you. God promises. You know what? When, when l- let, me say, let me say this. I was mulling on this out in the lobby. So do not, do not accuse me of not loving them. I owe them more than you do. I love them more than you do because I owe them more. But when Christians 
Robin Lane Fox says in his book, Pagans and Christians, like six or 700 page tome, he's not a Christian author. He's, he's just defining really what happened in church history. It's not a book on church history, but he's defining what is happening with pagans and Christians. And he says, when Christians were brought to die in the arena, the crowds, said Tertullian, would shout, look how these Christians love one another. All right. But what am I supposed to say about the Christians who exited the arena? What does God have to say about the Christians who only stood outside the fire and then they're throwing stones at us? I don't even understand you. But I'll tell you what happened to you. Just so you know. God promises if somebody approaches his word only to mock it, God will mock them. Consider yourself mocked. That's why there's a wrench in the Bible for anybody who wants to monkey with it. See, a monkey wrench, in case you don't know, a monkey wrench is a, an adjustable spanner with jaws. And those jaws are at right angle to the handle. And it has an adjustable shaft. So it can give the shaft to any nut out there. And I don't see why you're not getting this, because the Bible contains its own monkey wrenches. Matthew 20, 23, 34, the use of Easter. In Acts 12, 4, the capitalization. In Acts 28, uh, yeah, 15. That, and they will torque any nut out there. Turn to Matthew 13. God will answer you according to the idols in your heart, wherever you learned them, picked them up, drew them from, whatever you think about the people who gave them to you, how nice they are, that idol may be scholarship, it may be pride, it may be some other thing, but if, they, if, if you are not faith-based, if you do not believe, if you view God's word with a skeptical eye, it's not going to be effective for you. So you can pick up the goalposts of biblical authority from the King James Bible if you want to. Where are you going to put them at? Where are you going to put them down at? I, a lot of people are MT. Are any of them MTO? Not that I've heard. Well, TR. Okay, are you TRO? Well, no. All right. ESV. Well, you know, I tried being ESVO and... It hit the fan. I don't know. They tell me Mark Driscoll says King James people are not the onlyists. So he's ESVO. Okay, that's kind, of a, that's kind of a new thing. We'll see how that works out for him. Uh, but that's the exception that proves, proves the rule. Okay. So, so you, that's fine. Biblical authority. You can pull up the goalposts from the King James Bible if you want to. You have no place to stop until your OMO, original manuscript only, and they don't exist. You have no biblical authority by, by biblical definition. I go along with what N.T. Wright says. That's the most convenient out, isn't it? Blew me away last night. Pastor Mark Trotter talking about neo-orthodoxy and 
you know, I never read much Karl Barth. He is so verbose. <clears throat> but, but my daughter, when she went to school, and she went to a secular college, she actually joined a, now here's, okay, so here's a humble brag. She joined a sorority, and they made her the designated driver. She was the chaplain and the designated driver. And, um, but, you know, the popular thing at the time in the BSU was uh, N.T. Wright. So I read N.T. Wright for her sake. And I thought, oh, here's Karl Barth all over again. Here's uh, the neo-evangelicals have now become neo-orthodox. He's just as verbose. So, okay, Mr. Wright, what is biblical authority? Doesn't exist. The Bible can't be an authority. God is the only authority. And somehow God mediates that authority through the word of God. Nebulous statements, completely undefined. So you you can think you have biblical authority, but what happens is, if you view the Bible you have with a skeptical eye, it will stop speaking to you. And instead, you'll have to go to authors who say God speak to them, and you pick that up. Jesus calling. Well, he's not saying what he, what he sounds like he says in the New Testament, but that's all right. I mean, I mean, the Bible becomes sort of like the talking dog that won't talk if anybody else is listening. So the second reason for apparent errors, and this is letter B, is to reveal hidden truth to the honest person. Watch, Matthew 13. I say turn Matthew 13. Matthew 13, verse 10. And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it is not given. How loving is that? Therefore, Speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not. I mean, it's their fault. And hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. Why would the meek and lowly Jesus not speak like Sarion? Verse 15, because this people's heart is wax gross. And their ears are dull of hearing. Hello, somebody. And their eyes, they have closed. They exited the arena. What do I owe them? I mean, I'm willing to give them everything I owe them. But I'm in the fire, they're not. And they knew better. And it's not like it's, indefensible as a matter of fact it's not even like it's not incontrovertible when you start with believing assumptions and you view it believingly and not skeptically their eyes they have closed lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and should see that's the point you probably already turned off my live stream by, by now lest you should understand with your heart and should be converted if i could heal you even now You repented, I could heal you. Because it's not your past that keeps you stuck and holds you back. It is your present decisions. So when you see something that looks like an error, you need to ask God for the reasons why he said it the way he did. Study why 1 John 5, 7 was left out for so long and then included. 
because the two corollaries to these axioms are this. Number one, every error has an explanation. Number two, every explanation is connected to a spiritual instruction. Booyah! The editors and printers were providentially guided by the usage of Latin-speaking believers to follow the old Latin in the Vulgate in those few places where the Western church preserved biblical authority. Now turn to Hebrews chapter 9. 1 John 5, 7 is not a verse you'll find in the majority of Greek manuscripts because it's only an 8. It's a verse that you find in the wrong text. Why? Because God always gives an exception to prove his rules. Why? Because he wants to make sure he has a wrench to fit any monkey. Okay, I see you don't believe me, so, so let me go Bible on you. Hebrews 9, verse 27, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. Wait, Enoch didn't die. Enoch never once dies. Why? Because he is the exception to prove God's rules. Why? So that if you want to monkey around with God's word and say to God, see there, that blows your whole system. I don't have to believe in you. Then God has given you the rope to hang yourself with. God has given you the bullet to put in your gun. God has given you the rationalization for your rebellion. Bless your heart. So I learned that when I go to the South. You know, I'm loving as long as I, as long as you put at the end, bless your, bless their heart. But since that messed you up, let me keep going through our conclusions from the historical evidence. Number two, God approved this printed form of the Greek text through its usage by Bible-believing Protestants. The text found in the vast majority, up to 95% of the existing Greek manuscripts, became in its printed form the Textus Receptus, the received text of the church, and was used as a basis for Reformation translations, Protestant translations, into languages of Europe. No brag, just fact. I ain't hating, I'm just stating so don't hate, celebrate, and you will be allowed to participate. Because number three, the authorized version in English is an accurate translation of that received text. And this third conclusion now leads us into a further examination of the evidence. In order for us to be able to validate the conclusion and for you to be able to accept it with intellectual credibility. We investigate and explain the process of getting a text to translate from... But, but in the final analysis, and this is Roman numeral three, we have to look at the process of getting a translation to get our nose out of the papyri and back to the Bible level before we leave. So let me say four final things, and then we raise up out of here. The appeal of all new revisions is this. We are the new Romans. So we're never content with the state we live in. We're never satisfied with the things we have. But the coming of the King James Version was not like that. Because it was a process of refinement and improvement. It was not discontent with the good. It was not discontent with what God used. It was not dissatisfaction with a previously completed product. It was completion of a previously unfinished process. Therefore, the process of getting a translation was a lot like the act of inspiration in the following Four senses, letter A, it was supernatural. When sinful men wrote Holy Scripture, that was a supernatural accomplishment, just like 
the virgin birth of Christ, just like the inspiration of the Bible. It has absolutely no parallel in human history. But check this, check this. Creation, inspiration, canon, coming of KJV. Because what God does with his word is analogous to the other things he has done in his world. Watch, God intervened in history by his spirit to create mankind. God intervened in history by his spirit to give us his word. How do we know? Because Job 32 verse 8 tells us so. All you have to do is compare that claim to its own consistency and to human reality to conclude that what Job said is true. The book that resulted reflects the nature of God. Now, if you're not asleep, I know just what you're asking, Alan, what do you mean? Well, I mean the Bible has two natures, just like Christ has two natures. Christ was God, but he partook in the nature of man, so he was fully God and fully man when he died for us on the cross. But the Bible, while it was given through human authors, it's the product of divine inspiration. That makes it a divine book, not just a divine story. That means the words were inspired, not just the concepts or ideas. That means it is the very words of God that he wants us to have. He wants us to have words without any admixture of error from the human side. So just as the Savior, the incarnate word, is perfect without any mixture of sin from his human side, so is the scripture, the inspired word. But hold on one second, because you can't stop there. God intervened in history to create Creation, God intervened in history to inspire inspiration. God intervened in history by his spirit to direct believers in the choice of inspired books, canonization. Or the Holy Spirit superintended, if if you think the idea of direct intervention is too strong to describe the process. Because in the final analysis, God intervened in history by his spirit to give us his words in English. And this is my sixth point for study. We have a homogenous process with unhypocritical integrity that is consistent completely with our views on creation, inspiration, canonization, and the coming of the King James Bible. Creation, not evolution, accident, and impersonal forces of natural selection, but creation. Inspiration, not evolution, recension, lost, final rediscovery, but inspiration. Canonization, not evolution, church councils, power plays for who was going to be called orthodox. But the priesthood of believers, saints closer to the original writings, identifying inspired books for us. And the coming of the King James Version, not evolution, but God operating through the priesthood of believers in the same way he did for canonization. How, how, can, you go, how can you go with one and, and criticize those who go with the other? God utilizing human instrument, instruments like he did in inspiration, not sending us hermetically sealed packages from outer space, but God sticking in his finger in the dirt. So we were created in his divine image and didn't evolve from lower life forces. 
So it was supernatural. And second, letter B, it was sovereign. Inspiration is unrepeatable in the sense God's not continued to inspire his word today. What God did and how he did it was part of God's power and God's will. And I say the process of transmission, preservation, and getting a translation is compatible to that. You could not predict when his word would be inspired, and you could not duplicate the inspiration of his word. All you could do was recognize the Holy Spirit indeed inspired God's words through human believers. Ditto for all us Bible heads about the King James. And third, letter C, it was a process, not binary. First, God didn't reveal his entire mind the first time he spoke. Process. Second, the Bible itself is a progressive revelation process. The scripture appeared over time, and doctrines in scripture were unfolded over time through God's relationship with human beings and his actions here on earth. Third, God works by process, not, not, not binary. We think binary, on, off. You're either, it's either on or off. We have to do that. We're human. That is a Western way of thinking, just like the Western manuscripts. Like the concept of safety. It's not binary. We think of it that way. Well, that person is safe. Well, that person is unsafe. No. I, I, I was reading a story before I came out here of a nurse that was working with a pediatric cancer patient. And he was taking uh, some type of chemotherapy for leukemia, and they were giving him, and they went through all the protocols. I mean, they were safe. They started having nosebleeds, and they were packing his nose and trying to get a stop, and he had been, you know, animated and, and with them. And all of a sudden, he's listless, almost lifeless. And the nurse says... You know, maybe we're not safe, because safety isn't binary. It's a process. So then they called in, the, you know, the doctors and others, and oh, well, when he's lost that much blood through the nosebleeds, you know what? You just caused us to write new protocols for the entire country when we're working with this type of case, because it's a process. It's not binary. So, so... So, Jeremiah 36, when Jeremiah first speaks the words and Baruch writes them down, it's all the words, until it wasn't. It, oh, it was pure, yet it got purified. So riddle me this, Joker. Hebrews 5.8, the God who knows everything learns something by suffering. That's all I'm saying. You say, Alan, you know, some of this is really on the edge. As a matter of fact, I think I hear rocks rolling down over the hill. All right. But at least you know why you can trust the process of God giving us his words in English. The progressives aren't really progressive. We are. We understand God's providence. It is not blind fate. Jeremiah, God inspires his word through Jeremiah. Baruch writes it down, not scripture. It, it was all the words. But Alan, I thought God's words were settled in heaven. Yes, in heaven they are. 
They, they were settled from the beginning. Like Christ was crucified from the beginning, and yet the Jews of his day had a free offer to accept him as Messiah. So riddle me this, Joker. It was all God's words until Jehudi put pen knife to papyrus and they burned it. And then God opened the settled word. You know, you know there are some things, you know, yeah, uh, subatomic particles will behave differently depending on where you, whether you're watching them. I mean, people, you can criticize me for what I believe about the King James Bible all you want. All I'm saying is, at least it's scientific. Subatomic particle turns one way if I'm watching it and another way if I'm not. How, how does it know? I don't know. But okay, that happens there, and that's what scientists say. In quantum mechanics, that's the way it is. So okay, that's all the words of God. Oh, you burned it? Well, let me open up the, the, the word settled in heaven. Guess what? It just grew an inch. It, it grew five columns. I got, I got three more leaves to add to that scroll. Now that's all the words of God. Because God's providence has eyes. It responds to your responses, which is why you get the answer you're looking for when you're looking for the wrong answer. So, even the first editions of the King James were subject to spelling and printing standardization. So, the first two printings in 1611 don't agree with one another, and you don't know which one was first, and you don't need to. Both preservation and the process of getting a translation was not complete when the first writing was given. It was partial and progressive from Wycliffe to 1611. But in the final analysis, and this is letter D, it reached a goal and it stopped. Again, that ain't my fault. That's history. Turn to 2 Timothy 3. Eventually, the complete mind of God for man was received in transmission Men were the modems downloading the text. Uh, prophets were off the of heavenly servers from the Holy Spirit to their human spirit. That's inspiration. The hard drive that recorded the data we call the Bible. That's inscripturation. Well, but what started with, with Wycliffe went through six printed translations, moving it, pushing back the boundary till it got to what God wanted starting in 1604, and then the process stopped at number seven. And for 270 years, it was the only Bible we had in English. So that's, that's history. Either view it skeptically or believingly. View it believingly and you see what the Spirit of God did. So either the King James Bible is God's words in English, or we've never had them. And we never will because it is a lot less certain. The text to translate from much less the theory of linguistics in translating it. God's providence has eyes. That's, that's foreknowledge. That's why God's never boxed in, even when you box him in. That's why God can be so big, he can, he can create a rock so big he can't move it and still be God, because he did, he, he created your free will, he's still God. He takes your free will 
after you've been free to do what you want and factors it all right back in to what he knew was going to be from the beginning. And though all those are important points on the process of getting a translation because 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, this is not your grandfather's King James Bible conference. So let me give you a conclusion before we go. Uh, God gives things process. We're binary because we're finite. He's infinite. He's process. But we must still receive them binary because we're human. So the conclusion is this. If you can identify Scripture, you have something that is inspired. Or, okay, technically correct, you have something that is given by inspiration. And here's, here's the answer to the one question you all wanted to know. Why do even smart people resist KJVO? Why do even intelligent, smart, educated people resist the King James only idea? And I'm, I'm talking about our type of people, our ilk of people, evangelical people, otherwise say they are Bible-believing people, preach the gospel people, even Baptist people of all people. Why do they reject KJVO? And the answer is because it requires an obedience of faith. Just like you getting saved did. To accept it, it requires the obedience of faith. Um, It requires the obedience of faith, not my judgment appeasing God. Oh, I studied all this, and I learned this language, and I, I weighed the evidence. I didn't just count it. And when there was no evidence to be counted, I accepted the conjectures of a Catholic priest named Martini. Uh, so surely God is appeased uh, because we look good to the pagans. You know, that, that is one reason why the church that came out of the tunnel looks so different is because they became, shall I say, I mean, you can read the evidence for yourself, they became secret sensitive. It's like, hey, you know, uh, they, you know, these pagans, they got these festivals, why don't we just make them Christian-type feasts? Let's, let's take some of what they got and let's work it into our game. And uh, we, we need to reach those pagans. Because we finally got rid of all of those bad attitude believers in the arena. And the bad attitude believers who were standing inside the fire, well, you know, they were kind of crude and corrupt anyway. So, uh, so we got rid of them, and, and now my judgment can appease God. No, your faith needs to seek God's grace and then submit to it. You open a King James Bible, man, you got something God gave you by grace. And you say what you want about, oh, how, how nice the King James translators were, but not all of them were that nice. No, God gave you the King James Bible by grace. And you want to say, well, which King James? along with Mark Trotter, I say yes. 
you get all your culottes in a wad, and then you say, okay, look, well, you know, it's, uh, we got to be uh, and, and binary, and therefore, what about the PCE? The pure Cambridge edition. You know what? If you, if you go to the dollar store, when you leave here and hit the bargain bin and pick up a King James Bible, or get the Gideon King James Bible out of your hotel room, that's King James Bible. Yeah, but you know, Holman and Nelson and Zondervan and American Bible Societies, and they, you know what? They trimmed the baby's toenails. And I don't like that. Okay, so you're going to paint the baby's toenails and think that makes it better. I'm just saying, don't ask me which King James. The, The answer is yes. Because God's grace, because of God's grace. You can't come to that conclusion. You're going to tell me that the other process that started with Westcott and Hort and ends with everything we got today is a process of grace, of mercy, of faith, And I'm not saying that there are not believers who buy into it. I'm saying the process is not one of that. But what you receive, you've got to receive binary. So salvation is a crisis, not a process. Uh, The things that are not binary are a process but you have misidentified God's process as a totally human production. What is wrong with you? What was true of incarnation is true of inscripturation. As Brother Bartlett pointed out a couple of sessions ago, maybe you didn't count them, 108 things in which God and the Word of God are equated. So this is the last official session of this class. Um, Here, the last official session will actually be aired next Wednesday if you want to live stream it on lfbi.org. And I'm going to tie together the scribes, the scrolls, the scholars into the scriptures, and we'll tie up the two seeds, the two texts, the two lines of Bibles. In summary to this, here's what you need to do to go to lfbi.org and take it for credit. Because you need to be prepared. My time is up. I'll thank you for yours and turn it over to Troy, whoever else is going to tell you what to do next.